Amen. Uh, if you have a copy of the Scriptures today, we're going to be in Job. You can go ahead and turn or tap your way there. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. Uh, and, and if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen. And honestly, you may need the screen a bit today. We're going to be jumping around within that book of Job. So you can either be light-fingered and ready to jump around, or you just write down some of these references and check them after. It's very important to us that you know that the teaching, the activity, the leadership of Hope Church is all from the Bible. And so I want you to be able to trace my line of thought. Where am I getting the stuff that I'm saying? And, and in the book of Job, it's, it's maybe a little difficult, especially today, because we're covering a big middle portion of the book. But it is important. You don't have a copy of the Scriptures? We'd love to give you one. And, and if you don't, uh, you can also just download an app on your phone. It takes very little time. And then you got the whole of the Bible right there at your fingertips. Helpful little thing for you. What I want us to think about today, and this whole book is intense, right? But I want us to think about today one of the sort of back and forth moments between Job and his suffering. You think about suffering and what does it feel like? It's an emotion, so we can use emotion words, but if you describe it, the physical way you would describe it, the pain that you might use to describe it, is it a grinding pain or a sharp pain? dull pain, a burning pain. It's pain. And as Job is experiencing this pain, he has to have some sort of an outlet. He needs God to explain what's happening. And we know because of the beginning of the book that where this all came from was God desiring to show the whole of the universe, not just people and not even just the physical universe, the whole of everything, all of the angels, all of creation. He needed to show them that it's possible for his love to change the heart of the one whom he loves. In the very beginning of the book, the accusation that Satan makes against God is that those people who pretend to worship and to love God are really just using God for his blessings. So they don't love God, they just do things that God asks so that they can get their cattle and their health and their money and their respect. Big, wide families that have their name and they can spread their name and create nations of themselves. That terrible little grandkid that doesn't love grandma, but he lets her kiss him on the cheek because she knows he'll also, she'll also give him $5. Well, do you love grandma or do you love $5? Oh, I just love $5. Well, that's not, that's not appropriate. That's bad. And the enemy is saying that that's what we do towards God, that our love towards God, our service towards God is really just mercenary. And so... The Father allowed the enemy to take away all of these things that supposedly Job was worshiping God for. And still, Job knows none of this, and still Job worships God. Victory. God's proved right. We can understand that there's a force in this universe that is so lovely that when it touches you, it will change you. It's so lovely that it'll meet your stony heart and it'll soften it so that you start to love him for his sake. That's worship. 
Last week, we looked at how Job's friends, these people that come and circle him, so because, again, Job doesn't know any of this. None of it works if Job knows it. So Job doesn't know any of the stuff that's happening in the heavens. But these people come and they sit around him, these three guys, and they're arguing with Job. Because Job finally opens his mouth to speak, and he starts to process what's going on in his heart. And he just says, curse the day of my birth. I wish that I had never been born. As soon as he finishes that tirade, his friends start in on him and say, how can you say this? Is your suffering not your fault, Job? God's just. If you are suffering, if you have punishment from God, you must have done something to earn it, right? talked last week about how the wisdom that the world has towards suffering is bankrupt. How we as a people at Hope Church, if if we are believing the Bible to be true, we could never say to somebody in suffering, what'd you do? We can never look at somebody in suffering and pull away from them. How often do we want to do that? Like they've got a disease and if you get close, you're going to catch it. No. That's just wrong. And again, last week we spent the whole week on it, so we've got to go a little further this week. What happened when Job then dealt with his suffering? The, the big middle part of this book is those friends arguing their way, and then Job in response. And in Job's responses, we're going to put together some of what he's experiencing, and we're going to pull one big truth from it today. That big truth is that you need somebody to stand between you and God. Why? Job wanted answers from God. He certainly wanted some kind of healing from God. He needed something, and the only place it can come from is God. But how can Job stand before God? Think about what it feels like to get burned. I pulled a a sheet pan out of the oven two, three weeks ago and tapped my arm with it unintentionally. I think I was shutting the oven or something. Tapped my arm with it and it burned it. And I didn't feel it at first, but then it started to hurt. And it wasn't that bad. I'm pretty tough. But I was then reminded of other times when I've been burned. I remember, and there's one like big memory for me. I was about 10, and I was in Nana Rose's car. She was this lady that watched us after school. And then, I don't know her real name, Nana Rose. And Nana Rose was driving us to the community center. We're going to play basketball or something. Not with Nana Rose. <laughs> she was an old lady, but, but she's going to let us play basketball at the community center or whatever. And I pulled the cigarette lighter out, and I looked at it, and there's like a coil. I don't know if you ever, if you're born before like the 90s and you've seen a cigarette lighter, not just to plug in your phone, but um, the actual cigarette lighter part of it. And I looked, and there's like a coil. And it didn't, it was just metal colored. It wasn't like glowing or anything. And I was like, how does that light a cigarette? And so then I touched it. And it wasn't hot. I didn't feel anything. And then I did feel something. (laughs) It was extremely hot. And so when I didn't feel it at first, it was because that burning sensation took a minute. It had like cauterized whatever, and then it was working its way down. So I pulled my finger off and like put it back real quiet because I didn't want to get in trouble or whatever. And then Rose, who didn't see me do that, smelled the smell and was like, oh, what'd you do? Can I tell you to this day? I remember that pain. What other pain is there like burning pain? I mean, yeah, there's all kinds, but have you ever been burned? 
And then you think about in the Bible, how does God describe himself? He can choose to describe himself however he wants, right? And there's, there's big moments in Scripture where he chooses to describe himself as fire. There's one big one. It's right when Moses first meets God is going to get called by God to go and deliver the people of Israel, or if you're singing Israel, uh, from Egypt. And how does God represent himself? Moses walks by and he sees a burning bush. But the bush isn't consumed by the fire. Interesting. We'll think about that more. Later in Moses' ministry, as God takes the people of Israel out and he's guiding them, he shows himself, his presence, in this big column of, of cloud by day and at night. It's a column, a column up into the heavens of fire. What would that be like? What would that seem like? If that's how God chose to represent himself, would you think it would make sense for you to feel like we often feel about God? Like you could just walk into his house. Put your feet up on his table. No. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament that does a really good job of opening up the Old Testament for us. The Old Testament is beautiful in all of its intricacy, but sometimes it takes a minute to understand why. Hebrews is like that moment when you open up the little pop-up book and all of a sudden expands into this big thing. And what Hebrews says about God is, our God is a consuming fire. How can you stand before God? Job had that question. You need somebody to stand between you and God. As Job finishes his conversation with his friends, he says, I used to be blessed and respected. Now I am totally devastated. God has done it. I hope for good I got evil. That's a summary. And he says God has done it. And we're going to be very careful not to say that God did it, but that God allowed it. You may say semantics, but extremely important. It's a fallen world. God doesn't do this. We did this, but he does allow suffering, directs what suffering will come. But Job is very clear that God is God overall. Nothing happens without his allowing it. So he says in Job 30, 19 and 20, God has cast me into the mire. And I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help. And you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. What can he say? How can he stand before this consuming fire? And he, he needs answers. He needs God to speak. But how can he stand before God? He says in chapter 9, God's not a man as I am, that I might answer him. He's not an equal that I can stand before and argue with, that we could come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. 
What's he saying? He, he, need, he knows that he needs to speak to God. He needs answers from God. He needs some kind of comfort from the one who somehow allowed this calamity. But he also knows that even though he's injured, he doesn't have the right to just stand before God. If you are going to be prepared for suffering, you have to have in your mind a very clear idea of who you're dealing with and how you are to deal with Him. So today, that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on how. How do we get someone to stand between us and God? We have to understand the different components in that equation so that when the suffering comes on you or your loved ones, you have in your back pocket the ability to say, I know how I can stand before God. I I can't stand before Him because I'm good enough to stand before Him. That's a huge mistake that a lot of us make. You go and you stand before God and you're outraged at His injustice because you're sure that you're right. Is that how we stand before God? Job made something like a similar argument even though he knew it would never work out. You are not good enough to stand before God. Job was not good enough to stand before God. And Job was better than you are. I don't know that, but I'm pretty sure. I've met most of you. You're not better than Job. Here's how I'm going to make my argument. You ready? It's true or it's not. Here's how I'm going to make my argument. Job, when he gets to the end of the book, when he's finishing his argument against his friends, and they're saying, you have done something to deserve this. And Job is saying, I have not done anything to deserve this. He makes his argument at the end by saying, I have not lusted. I have not lied. There is no adultery that God could blame on me to do this to me. I have never refused charity. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe you can fudge your way around some of these first couple. Have you ever refused charity? Job could say that he hadn't to his servants, to the widows, to the orphans, or to the poor. Job said that he never let his heart trust in gold. We talk about idols here a lot. What's a bigger idol than your trust in your finances or your fear in your lack of finances? It's the same idol. You either have it and you're proud of it or you don't and you wish you did because in both cases you are certain that the God of all things is money. But Job is saying, no, 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 I never trusted in gold. My heart never went after it. I had it. I had it in spades, but I never let myself worship it. He said that he did not hate his enemies or reject sojourners. And he doesn't have some very legalistic understanding of this stuff when he says that he hasn't sinned in these ways. He says about his own lust, verse 31, or chapter 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Do you understand that he's saying about adultery what Jesus is saying about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount? All the time when we talk about sin, oftentimes people say, well, that's not me because we usually grade ourselves in our holiness on a comparative scale. We say, well, I'm not as bad as that idiot, and I'm not as good as her yet, but, you know, give me time. And because things are getting better, and because you kind of explain away your giant failures, and because you're blind to most of your giant failures, you kind of make this argument about yourself that you're doing pretty good. 
And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount just devastates by saying, it's not just what you do, it's even what you want that is sin. And then he uses the case of adultery. He says, it's not just adultery that's sin. If you even look lustfully with your eyes, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Why? Listen, if you don't have the courage or opportunity, but you desperately have the desire, how can you say you're holy? We look back at people like King David in the Old Testament, and he's got all these, you'll say dalliances. That's the word that came to mind. Adultery? And you say to yourself, oh, yeah. Okay. He had the same feelings you have. He just happened to be king. He had ample courage and clearly he had ample power to bring it about. Are you any different? Job was making the claim that he had not sinned in these ways. Not that he was perfect, but that he was sacrificing, that he was repenting of his sin, that he was seeing growth in these areas, that he was clearly doing better at it than the people that he saw around him. And again, that's a comparative basis, but we're talking about calamity falling on his life. And he's saying, I can't think of anything that I've done that is so much worse than what other people have done that I would have calamity like this in my life. In the Old Testament, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis these people that were just cities that were so absolutely rebellious against God that he eventually just rained fire and destroyed them. Does that mean that all the rest of the cities that God doesn't destroy with fire are perfect? Are without sin? No. It just means that those two were so far beyond the pale. Job is not saying that he's perfect. He's saying, though, that there is nothing in his life that would justify this response on him and not on Eliphaz. Not on these friends. Sin's all around us. But he's saying, I haven't sinned to the point that I understand why this is happening to me, and yet my sin is such that I can't stand before God. I'm not good enough to stand before God. And if Job is saying that with his track record, I'm telling you that you are not good enough to stand before God. You're not good enough and you're not great enough. If you wanted to stand before God and argue your case and have him say to you, well, you're right. Not only are you not good enough to get in the door, you're not great enough to get in the door. How are you going to speak to God? How are you going to have the wisdom to speak to God? Job is very clear throughout these chapters that God is way more powerful, that God is way more wise than he will ever be. He said about God's power in chapter 26, 14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him? The thunder of his power. Who can understand power? Well beyond our understanding. Greatness at a magnitude so far beyond us that we're not going to be able to converse with it. He talks about God's wisdom in chapter 28. Where shall wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its worth. He's not found in the land of the living. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. There's a radio show called This American Life. I haven't listened to it for years and years, but there was one that I used to, uh, there was a show that I heard at one point, and one of the acts was about this guy named Bob Berens. And Bob was an electrician. 
And I love electricians. I have no capacity with uh, electrical stuff. There's stuff in my house that needs to be done that I'm embarrassed to ask people to do because it's so simple that I should be able to do it. <laughs> but I haven't. Uh, and I'm telling you now. Electricians are, not, this isn't a knock on electricians, but he was an electrician, not a physicist. He was like a, a hockey player, and he knew this other guy through hockey. Not like young, cool hockey. Like old man reliving the dream hockey. And he was goalie, and his buddy was, you know, one of the other positions. I can't think of the names of hockey positions. But one of the other positions. And he gets, this buddy gets a call from Bob, because the buddy's a journalist. And Bob says to him, I need your help in writing a book, because I found something amazing. And the buddy's like, oh my gosh, what? And Bob, the electrician, said, I took a year off of work because I have found that Einstein was wrong and that E does not equal MC squared. <laughs> and what does his buddy do? His buddy's like, well, Bob, you're smarter than me. I'm not an electrician. But I'm not a physicist either. And they all seem pretty excited about the fact that E does equal MC squared. So they enter into this dialogue. They go back and forth because the guy's like, well, I don't know. Maybe if this guy's right, I mean, that would be a book. And so this guy, the journalist, takes Bob's paper to these different uh, physicists. He goes to universities and calls these people up and says, hey, my friend has this theory. Would you look at it and tell me if there's any merit to it? And he gets rejected again and again and again and again because physicists get these kinds of things put on their desk all the time. Somebody with no understanding of physics who claims to understand that Einstein was wrong. And if you'll just listen to them, they'll remake everything. This guy, Bob, eventually was able to sit down with a physicist. He was a professor at some place. He's got PhDs all over the wall. He's got patents all over the wall. And the guy did read the paper and he said, not only is this so stupid that it's wrong. He said, this isn't even like your first physics class. This is like you were a sociology major and you had to take physics. And so you wrote your first paper and it was that bad. Why? Because believe it or not, Bob Burns, the hockey goalie and electrician, was not smarter than Albert Einstein. He wasn't. And his big argument before this guy was like, okay, I know that I'm right. I just don't know how to do the math for it. But if you'll do the math, we can show the world that Einstein was wrong. Isn't that a little ridiculous? What was it in his brain that said, not only am I equal to, I am superior to Einstein. I don't know any of the math. I don't know any of the physics, but I think I got him here. Really? There's something in our heart that says, maybe it's not that impossible. Maybe I am as great as God. Maybe I'm even greater than God. Surely I can stand before him. Surely I can speak to him. And we think when we're speaking to God that he's a person, because clearly we're taught that in Scripture. He is a person, not a human, but he is a person. He's not just a principle. We just assume that it's like speaking to another person, maybe a smarter person or a more beautiful person or a more powerful person, but it's still just speaking to a person. And so we think to ourselves, maybe, 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 Maybe I can stand before him. Maybe I have a right to be in his presence. Really? No. Job knows. 
he said. There needs to be an arbiter. There's no arbiter between us who can lay his hand on both of us. Quickly, I want to look at one of the corollaries here because there is something to be said about how wrong the friends still are. We're going to spend a whole series on this concept of judgment. But you can't stand before God because you don't see enough. You're not good enough, you're not great enough, but you also don't see enough. You don't know yourself and you don't know others in the way that you should. The Apostle Paul said it this way. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. No, our culture says, amen. You can't be judged by other people. You have to decide who you are and what's good for you. But then look at what Paul says, because this is where Christianity breaks. Jesus said, don't judge. Absolutely. Don't judge. But look at the logic of Scripture. In fact, I don't even judge myself. And again, there's a part of the pop psychology that says something like, yeah, you know, you don't want to get down on yourself. But that's not what Paul's saying either. He's saying that he doesn't have the right to claim that he's wrong, but he also doesn't have the right to claim that he's right. Verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Even if you think you are getting better, even if you think you are godly and even more godly than other people around you, that's not for you to say. It's God who is greater. It is God who knows. It is God who is the one who judges man. You're not good enough. You're not great enough. And you don't see well enough yourself or others. You can only stand before God in one way. Job 19, he says this, and he says this probably in the time of the patriarchs, even before Moses. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet my flesh shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. What's he saying? He says, I can't stand before God, but I know that I will. Why? A Redeemer. This arbiter, this one who can lay hands on both Job and God. Who are we talking about? Well, last week, Josh talked some during the song about how Nebuchadnezzar was this great king, king over all, king over Babylon, the greatest kingdom in the world. And he declared that everybody in the whole kingdom would bow down to his image. It's an image of him. It's an image of one of their gods. I don't know. But based on his authority, everybody had to bow down to this big golden statue whenever the music started to get play, played. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do it. So the music played, and everybody bows down, and in the back are three little Jews standing. Because they can't. They can't bow down. They have a God. And that God's greater than any other God. So Nebuchadnezzar brings him into court, and he stands and he looks at him, and he looks down probably from his giant throne with lions on either side and says, Who are you not to bow down when I play the music? That is the command. When we play the music, you better bow down. And if you don't, I'm going to throw you in a furnace. Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply, I hope, not with a lot of like, you know, lip and sass, but out of the humility that comes with knowing God and the boldness which comes with that humility, we're not going to bow down. 
you can throw us into the flames, but we have a God, and he's greater. And he can save us from your flames, O king. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down because he's greater. So, Nebuchadnezzar, fuming, has the furnace heated up seven times. He grabs the guys, or he doesn't, but he has some people grab the guys and throw them into the furnace. And it's so hot that the guys that go throw them in, die. But these three little Jews that go falling into the furnace stand. And Nebuchadnezzar stands up from his seat and says, Ho, ho, ho! I see three walking around and even a fourth. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. They get thrown into this fire. And the only thing that burns, apparently, are the ropes that bound these three guys. And they walk around with a fourth who looks like the son of the gods. Who do you think that was? I think you can make a strong case that it was Jesus. And that's a miracle. But can I say, it's not super impressive. Why? Because Jesus invented fire. He's supernatural. He walked from heaven down to Babylon and laughed as this guy who thought he was the king of the world took fire, which God himself created when he spoke sons into existence. And then he walked into that fire and said, no, 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 you're fine, guys. It's, it's fine. You're not even going to smell like smoke. Miracle, not that impressive. What is impressive is what it foreshadows. Because when Jesus comes and dies for us, central fact of Christianity, he doesn't go and get burned by physical fire. He doesn't touch some old lady's cigarette lighter. He receives the wrath of the true king. Nebuchadnezzar was powerful compared to you and me, but not compared to the God of all things. And that king said, if you disobey me, you will go into that furnace, my furnace. According to the gospel, Jesus went into that fire for you and for me. There is another in the fire standing next to me. Jesus, not merely suffering with us so that he can look at us and hold us and say, I get it, which is an incredibly powerful blessing. But saying also, I took the worst of it. I took the fire of the wrath of God. We talk about hell because the Bible talks about hell and Jesus talked more about it than anybody else in Scripture. And when he describes it, he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, but he also talks about the fire that does not go out. Do you understand that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus? And that he took it for you. So that he could be the arbiter that lays his hand both on Job and on God. That because of Jesus, you can stand before God. Not because you're just perfect and able to stand before that all-consuming fire, but because He has had that punishment laid on Him. He has put His blood on you. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand how the Christian can never be proud? Do you understand how our love for others should always be bubbling up in this incredible gratefulness for what God has done for us? Do you understand the iron plating that gives you for suffering? That unlike Job, you can 
Walk before God and say to him. And now next week we're going to find out that this is exactly what God does. God responds to Job next week. But in the midst of his suffering, Job was praying for a redeemer and trusting that there would be one. He was praying for an arbiter and hoping that there would be one. We now are looking back and know that there is a redeemer. There is an arbiter that can stand between you and God. Do you trust him? Do you know Him? Lord and Heavenly Father, right, right now as we finish our time and go into this time of the Lord's Supper, I just ask that You would make clear what our hope is in. Do we think we can stand before the all-consuming fire of God's wrath and judgment, His holiness and purity, because of our goodness? Or because of our greatness? Or because we're so perceptive that we can make some kind of cogent argument about how much better we are than the people around us? No, Father. Please make clear to our hearts that we need someone to stand with us in the fire. And that Jesus has done exactly that. Pray that we would receive that grace for your glory and our goodness. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.